0: You're listening to episode 46 of Sassmouth Dames Podcast. Many words have been dedicated to memorable entrances in film. Forget Harry Lyman the Cat or Gilda's hair flip. The standout entrance in the 1940s belongs to Jean Tierney in Otto Preminger's Laura from 1944. As Laura Hunt, Tierney makes not one but two remarkable entrances. When we first see her, she looks earnest in a houndstooth skirt suit and a matching hat. It's the kind of outfit she probably saved for and takes good care of. It's her good suit that she wears to feel fortified in a business setting. Everything matches specifically to give Laura the air of a woman pulled together, one who pays attention to detail. Laura appears to be probity embodied in check pattern. You anticipate how many hours she spent to prepare for this opportunity. She leaves a table full of her peers at a busy restaurant and bravely carries an artist's portfolio across the room to Waldo Lidecker's table. Laura proceeds to pitch her own idea to a total stranger who just so happens to be one of the most important men in journalism and an influential tastemaker. Based on the Algonquin round table wit Alexander Wolcott and played by Clifton Webb, Waldo Lidecker has a reputation as omnipresent as the humidity in August in New York City. Laura pulls out a mock-up ad of a pen she would like him to endorse. She hovers beside him, hopeful. Waldo avoids any eye contact, reserving his interest for the delicate task at hand. He's absorbed with clearing offensive morsels from his plate. Maybe it's almonds or croutons or maybe sliced fruit. He uses his knife and fork with surgical-grade precision as though he were removing porcupine quills from his lunch. Waldo attempts to give her the brush off. He calls her rude, ill-bred. He rejects her offer to endorse the pen, he says, because he loathes pens. I write with a goose quill dipped in venom, he says. Waldo speaks with a salty tongue when he tells her that his lunch is more important than her career. When he says she's beginning to bore him, Laura drops the plane of tone and tells him she feels sorry for him. Only when Laura points out his rude behavior does she gain Waldo's attention. During Waldo's recollection of how they met, we find out that Laura Hunt was 17 years old when she buttonholed the irascible man who commands 50 cents a word. Imagine having the Polish and poise to do that at 17. Waldo tells the story to the detective Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews. He recalls their relationship over the span of five years, which brings us up to date for when they recently celebrated Lara's 22nd birthday. In only five years, Lara moves from being just a teenager in a steno pool to an advertising executive in a plum office. She moves in the highest circles of New York society. She has a staff of administrators and artists. Laura has a devoted housekeeper, a spacious, luxurious flat in Manhattan, a house in the country, a glamorous wardrobe, and her own portrait in oil above the mantle. I'll come back to that portrait in a moment. When people insist on discussing Laura as though she were a standard noir dame, I want to put my hair in a smooth updo and evangelize. Laura Hunt is no femme fatale. As a teenage girl, she brought Manhattan to her feet. Why do people assume that male obsession produces a spider woman or results in a woman being passive-aggressive or enamored of the double cross? Waldo, who is so stingy with praise, admits that Lars's own ideas and imagination are what made her a success in business. Waldo may have made the introductions, but Lar's acumen and creativity made things happen. Laura and Bessie, her maid, are the only people in the picture who have clearly defined moral compasses. Initially, Laura tried to shield both Waldo and Shelby from the unfair judgments of others. She's protective. She's kind. It's what made her offer a job to Shelby Carpenter, played by Vincent Price, when he hadn't the price of a cocktail in his pocket, and what made her lie for him later on. When Laura's with men, she doesn't have a hidden agenda, nor does she have to connive or cheat to get what she wants. She works for it. When Laura accepts Shelby's invitation to dance after work, he coaxes her to join him in his real occupation as a loafer. He asks her out for dinners blocked out three months into the future. He asks about lunch. What about beautiful lunches day after day after day? He asks as they move about the dance floor. Laura responds, what about work? Beautiful work, day after day after day. Laura's robust work ethic shows no signs of flagging, because she knows exactly how it has elevated her professionally and socially. Shelby's just an indolent playboy who ran through his inheritance until the sheriff arrived to claim his property. If Laura has anything in common with women classified in noir, it's Joan Crawford's Mildred Pierce. Both women applied themselves to business and rose to success, despite the men who tried to drag them down. Three men dominate the story of Laura with their theories and fantasies about her and who was responsible for her murder. Waldo, Mark, and Shelby obsess over the woman as they discuss her murder over cocktails. Then suddenly, Jean Tierney makes her second entrance halfway through the picture, Wearing a white hat with a floppy brim pinned back over the crown, the effect casts a halo of light around Jean Tierney's face. Presumed dead, she dazzles the police officer who leads the investigation when she finds him dozing in a chair. For once, the glib cop, a broadsheet legend of the silver shin, who has seen it all, drops the wisecracks and is stunned speechless. He doesn't hide behind the baseball game that he carries in his pocket. Laura Hunt looks like an apparition, glowing dewy fresh from the rain. What do you do when your fantasy woman turns up with a pulse? Once Laura opens her mouth and breaks the spell her portrait had cast over him, she demands to know why he's there and then threatens to call the police. Men have projected their desires on Laura from the beginning. She's been a Galatea, a lady in peril, a soft touch. Jean Tierney's performance has received begrudging notices that usually paint her as the weak link in the cast. On the contrary, as Laura Hunt, Jean Tierney speaks softly, but carries a big stick with sass etched in gold letters. The key to her performance is that she doesn't over She doesn't have to. For starters, she's reticent, not wooden. She reserves what she thinks until she sizes up a scenario. By necessity, an ambitious woman keeps her cards close to her chest so she can rise quickly and go far in a cutthroat industry. Jean Tierney plays this with a very controlled underplay, which was exactly what the director Otto Preminger had hoped for. She had already proven she could choose scenery in the Shanghai Gesture from 1941 when she played a drug addict. Here, Tierney cools her jets as any woman who occupied a prestigious career would have. She need not chatter on. She knows when she actually speaks, men will listen. Lara has youth, beauty, and accomplishments, which grant a surefire audience. She also makes firm declarative statements. At one point, she says, No man is ever going to hurt me again, and that includes you, Waldo. As much as he would like to have her curated under glass, along with his other priceless treasures, Waldo doesn't own Laura. I don't believe for a minute that Laura planned to marry Shelby. Any woman who says thank you in the way that Laura does to Shelby does not regard him as husband material. When Laura says it to Shelby, it's an overly formal, clipped manner, as though he were the doorman in front of Barney's New York or the maitre d' at the 21 Club. Laura's thank you is imperious. Thank you. It's another way of saying you are now dismissed. There's nothing in her reply that occasions headboard-banging passion that makes you lose the run of yourself. Jean Tierney's Laura is fully in control. She hired him for goodness sake. Why would she marry an underling? When Mark assumes Laura will behave as he desires, she shuts him right down by saying, I never have been and I never will be bound by anything I don't do of my free will. Laura Hunt is no doormat. Mark can compel Laura to submit to questioning under hot lights, as his interrogation has her do, but it really has nothing to do with Diane Redfern. He wants the truth about Laura's relationship with Shelby. The sexual jealousy emanates from him like cartoon stink lines. Laura can sense it. She can smell it. I don't believe he's a serious contender. What woman would trade all that Laura has for a police detective who fell in love with a portrait? Can you seriously expect him to assimilate into Laura's world without a constant jealous rage on the horizon? She claims the right to define her boundaries. If we examine the film from Laura's perspective, this is a woman's picture, a cautionary tale about what happens when when women climb the ladder of success— Men want to own you, or they want you dead. The most important indicator of Laura's booming career is her portrait hanging on the wall. A woman's portrait is a familiar trope in film noir. For example, women painted on a canvas move the plot forward in Rebecca, The Woman in the Window, Gaslight, Scarlet Street, The Two Mrs. Carrolls, The Woman on the Beach, and Born to be Bad. But Laura's portrait is unlike most others that we see in the genre. And I don't just mean the fact that it wasn't really a painting. In his memoir, Otto Preminger says that the original film director, Robert Mamoulian, had his wife, Azadia Newman, paint Jean Tierney for the portrait used in the film. Later, when Preminger took over the project, he scrapped the painting along with the other sets the former director had chosen. Preminger explained that portraits didn't often photograph well for the screen. In order to achieve the effect he wanted, to have an image that transfixed Dana Andrews, he had a photograph of Jean Tierney blown up. Then they smeared a bit of oil paint around to blur the edges to achieve the finished portrait. What truly sets the painting and Laura apart from the others is that it wasn't painted for or given to a man. Every other dame in a frame is done to suit the male gaze. Dana Andrews may fall in love with the woman in the oil painting, but he's an interloper, a voyeur. He isn't the intended audience. Laura Hunt casts herself in oil to hang over her own mantle. Laura's portrait bears an ethereal glow of a mystic, a saint, a noble woman. It casts her above the realm of mere mortals. Talk about a mood board. If you had that to greet you every morning, how bright the day would look. What wonders it would do to boost the old self-esteem? When women are conditioned to be modest, to sacrifice for the war effort, to be demure and defer to a man, Laura Hunt poses an oil with a look that bears greater resemblance to a monarch than an overstyled socialite. Rather than vanity, what her portrait really spells out is power. The painting exists for her own pleasure and her own gaze. Unlike, say, Joan Fontaine's portrait in Born to be Bad, Laura's portrait isn't up for bidding by a man. It bears no price tag like Christabel Cain's or Joan Bennett's portraits in The Woman in the Window or Scarlet Street. Laura remains as fresh and captivating as it did when it premiered because of the characters. We can credit the picture's longevity with the point that Daryl Zanuck emphasized, which is included in the collection of his studio writing, Memo from Daryl Zanuck, The Golden Years at 20th Century Fox. Zanuck drew a parallel in his memo to the Maltese Falcon. He said, were the picture to be any good or work, it would be because all of the characters were unique and a standout in their own right. He wrote that it was essential that the audience get a sense of everyone independently, who they are and what they want. The attention to detail for characterization in Lara is meticulous. Take, for example, the wraparound skirt that Judith Anderson wears when we first see her character, Anne Treadwell. In his memoir, Otto Preminger complained that initially she had been costumed in a long flowing Grecian robe by the first director on the production, Ruben mamoulian Preminger was furious at the way it made the picture look dated and like a period piece rather than a modern story set in New York. After Preminger took over, Anderson's wardrobe from Bonnie Cashin befits a stylish woman of wealth. In the first scene, she wears a simple black dress with an overlay wrap for top skirt. It's done up in a flowing silk, and the pattern provides a bit of character development. It looks like an expensive Hermes scarf with an equestrian link pattern. It speaks of money and the horse racing circuit that Shelby makes a claim to have in his background. Anne Treadwell's skirt references mint juleps, the Kentucky Derby, and rich white people on the lawn. Anderson even wears a gold link bracelet to match. Even better, the scene in Laura's bedroom, when she finds Anne primping there, is loaded with microaggression. Anderson uses the tiniest gestures in her beauty touch-ups, a slight fluff of her hair, the bare bones appraisal of her appearance in the mirror. Anne's small gestures are loaded with hostility. It shows viewers the degree of control she has as she warns Lara away from Shelby. It also suggests what might happen were she to lose control. It's telling that Anne doesn't have a regular tube of lipstick. She uses a long wand that looks as deadly as a poisoned dart. Then there's Waldo's suit in the opening scene. The picture opens with a voiceover narration from Clifton Webb, as his character Waldo Lidecker recalls, I shall never forget the weekend Laura died, a silver sun burned through the sky like a huge magnifying glass. It was the hottest Sunday in my recollection. When Dana Andrews arrives in Waldo's posh flat shortly after Lara's death, he's called into the bathroom to greet his host, who's cooling off in the tub. In a giant marble tub, Waldo looks like he's a Roman senator. Officious and brusque, his fingers hover over a typewriter on a tray across the tub, and he casts a sideways glance at the police detective, who is in intimate proximity. Waldo the tastemaker rises from the tub, takes a towel from the button-down cop, and proceeds to dress without interrupting his speech. If it's clearly so hot, why does Waldo dress in a boiled wool suit? The waistband clings upon his ribcage, harnessed to braces slung over his pigeon-like shoulders. Waldo's suit is made of such heavy fabric that the creases in his trousers could smuggle diamonds. Why such a heavy suit for a hot day? Both Shelby and Mark wear suits in the lightest summer material. Their fabric breathes and moves like you could wear one without soaking it through on the subway. A man of Waldo's reported elegant style should be dressed in linen or seersucker or at the very least a light wool. Waldo's suit tells me that there's more than meets the eye here. His suit suggests how vulnerable his age makes him feel. When we saw him in the tub, he looks kind of like a plucked chicken. His ribs are visible. He's so scrawny that he probably needs a pillow between his knees to sleep at night. Waldo's suit tells me he knows he looks withered, and so he uses hefty fabric to bulk up his silhouette. Later, he makes a remark that shows contempt for the men who win Lara's affection, those men with rude health and a commanding physique like Shelby. The formidable man is vulnerable, and he has something to hide. We can summarize their characters to some extent through dialogue. I read my articles to her. The way she listened was more elegant than speech, Waldo says. Waldo wants an admirer. A receptive audience, he wants to see himself reflected in a young, glamorous, successful woman of society. And like many men, he prefers women who listen rather than speak. For Mark, he takes great pride in one of the very few personal details he shares. A doll in Washington Heights once got a fox fur out of me. Whenever you see a man who boasts about not being made a sucker by a dame, you're looking at one. Shelby's best lines, his most telling, are, That's a completely wonderful hat, dear. Or when he tells Laura that he approves of the hat and the girl in it. Shelby knows that he must pepper his conversation with compliments if he hopes to ingratiate himself with women who can change his fortunes. Flattery is how Shelby sings for his supper. Preminger's film shows us that Laura does not live in a castle fortress. Her walls are easily breached by men who want to entertain their side piece, like Shelby does with Diane Redfern, or men like Mark who want to drink her liquor, snoop through her diary, letters, and her lingerie. Laura can hardly claim she's a queen of her castle when her door is so easily encroached upon. When Laura returns from a weekend in her country home, she finds Mark asleep in her chair as though he owned the place. As a woman's picture, it tells us you may be at the top of your profession, yet men will hold your success in provisional regard. Men feel entitled to Laura's space, time, and body by varying degrees. Vincent Price recalled in an interview that during the premiere of Laura, the cast received a wonderful surprise. They finally heard the score. The score continues to be one of the most recognizable and utterly haunting and chanting from the history of cinema. David Raskin accepted the job to write the theme for the picture after Alfred Newman and Bernard Herrmann took a pass. In an early interview, Raskin recalled that his wife had left him the day before he sat down to write the score for Laura. He felt that the music struck a chord with audiences because it was infused with a sense of longing that came with a lost love. After the picture became a box office hit, Johnny Mercer was contracted to add lyrics to Raskin's theme. The song went to the top of the hit parade. Frank Sinatra recorded a popular cover of Laura, which you can find on YouTube. As many people have noted, the picture was close to disaster. When it was put into production, the studio had originally slated it as a B-picture. Zanuck never took an interest in B-pictures. Preminger was hired on as a producer, but Zanuck told him that as long as he was head of the studio, Preminger would never be a director. Zanuck still held a grudge after he fired Preminger back in 1937. After Preminger made a few hits for the studio in the mid-1930s, which earned him invitations to Zanuck's home, as only the chosen favorites were received, they later butted heads. Preminger had been ordered to direct an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Kidnapped. Preminger hated the script, and he saw doom written all over it, so he refused. Zanuck was furious and sacked him. Preminger just shrugged his shoulders and went back to directing theater in New York. While Zanuck was busy with his military service, Preminger returned to the studio to adapt Margin for Error to the screen. It had been a hit on the stage, which he had directed and also starred in as a stylish Nazi. At first, Preminger was stymied because when Zanuck returned, his grudge was still fresh. He told Preminger he could remain on the project as producer, but he would never again direct in Fox. Preminger watched as Louis Milestone turned it down, and then others. Then finally, Ruben Mamoulian stepped in to direct the picture. He banned Preminger from the set, saying he couldn't direct with another director hanging over his shoulder. After two weeks, Zanuck and Preminger looked at the rushes. They were awful. The cast was overacting. They played everything too large or they were too weak. Preminger credited Zanuck with being more flexible than other studio heads. After Preminger acted out the parts to a script he knew by heart to show how it should be played, Zanuck fired Memollian and put Preminger on as director. Now it was slated for an A-picture release. Preminger had chosen the novel by Vera Kasperi, but he wanted to depart from the way Kasperi told it for his picture. Jay Dratler wrote the screenplay, but Preminger thought it needed improvement. To add dimension and panache to the dialogue, Preminger called in the team of Sam Hoffenstein and Betty Reinhardt. Sam was responsible for most of Waldo Liedecker's best lines. The casting nearly ruined the picture head of casting, Rufus Lemaire, told Zanuck to reject Preminger's choice for Clifton Webb as Waldo because, quote, he flies, which was code for Clifton being too overtly gay. Daryl Zanuck wanted Laird Krieger for the part, who was already under contract in Fox. Preminger protested that Krieger always played the bad guy, and if he were in the role, it would give away the plot's mystery. Once Preminger filmed Clifton Webb on stage doing a monologue from Blythe Spirit, which he was then performing on stage, Zanuck relented to him being cast. Clifton Webb survived the picture on a regimen of benzodrine and sleeping pills to give his performance, which eventually took its toll on him physically and mentally when the production had wrapped. Zanuck had passed on Preminger's choice of Dana Andrews in the picture, He didn't think he was tough enough. He had John Hodiak lined up to play the police detective. Dana Andrews' biographer, Carl Rawlison, in Hollywood Enigma, Dana Andrews, reports that Zanuck's wife, Virginia, was responsible for the casting change. She had watched Dana Andrews in the studio one day, telling him that she had always considered him to be a character actor rather than a leading man. Dana Andrews responded that that was because he had to make it seem believable that he would lose a leading lady to Ty Power or some other leading man. He assured her that he would react differently in a leading role. When Hetty Lamar was asked why she turned the production down, she said, They sent me the script. They, they didn't send me the score. Jennifer Jones was originally chosen to star in the picture, but David O. Selznick considered the role beneath her since her recent Best Actress Oscar for The Song of Bernadette. Fox then actually sued Jennifer Jones when she never showed up for work. In the end, though, this was a smash hit. The production recouped its costs from the box office seats from England alone. Laura received Oscar nominations for Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, Best Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. Joseph Lachelle won for his cinematography. The picture boosted everyone's career. It made stars of Gene Tierney and Dana Andrews. I'll close the episode with a brief excerpt from Self-Portrait by Gene Tierney, published in 1978. When you have spent an important part of your life playing Let's Pretend, it's often easy to see symbolism where none exists. The role most often identified with my career was that of the title character and Laura. The part was unusual in that Laura dominated the story as a presence, felt but unseen for half the movie. She was the victim of events she had not created and could not control. Laura was a woman of mystery and glamour, unattainable, the kind of woman I admired in the pages of Vogue as a young girl. I have never been easy with explaining things, why this works or that does not. Rehearsals and screening rooms are often unreliable because they can't provide the chemistry, the currents between an audience and what appears on the stage or screen. A great work may stand on its own, But if the chemistry is there, an ordinary story becomes something better. To analyze it further is like trying to explain air. Laura had the chemistry. I'm not being modest when I say that people remember me less for my acting job than as the girl in the portrait, which was the movie's key prop. Then there was the haunting title song by Johnny Mercer and a tricky plot. Laura, believed to be the victim of a murder, reappears to become a suspect. Whatever the reasons, through the years, the movie became a cult favorite. No salute to Fox is complete without a film clip from it, usually the scene where the detective, Dana Andrews, dozes in a chair and suddenly the girl in the picture appears before him. Laura come to life. I have had people tell me that they set their clocks to get up after midnight in order to catch Laura on The Late Late Show. I liked the script, but after one reading was unenthused about my role. The time on camera was less than one would like. Also, who wants to play a painting? The treatment of the story seemed unorthodox. The first half was narrated by Clifton Webb's character, the writer Waldo Lidecker, who is secretly in love with Laura but finally tries to do her in. The second half was told from the viewpoint of the young detective who falls in love with her portrait. Would the device work? In truth, only Otto Preminger had absolute faith in the project. I had heard that Jennifer Jones turned down the part before Fox offered it to me. It is possible that I did not mind the part so much as the idea of being second choice. If Jennifer Jones doesn't want it, I asked Daryl Zanuck, why should I? The role is right for you, Jean. Zanuck assured me. You'll be good in it, and you'll see. This one will help your career. I had a hunch he might be right, and I always tried to play my hunches. Really, I was in no position to be picky. I had not made a picture in over a year. My husband was still in the army. The extent of our baby daughter's problems was not yet known. I needed to get back to work. The word actress has always seemed less a job description to me than a title. I did not feel I had earned mine yet. Laura was to be my first suspense role. Whatever my reservations, I had the title role, a chance to establish myself as a leading lady. Throughout my career, I was to be cast as a frontier girl, an aristocrat, an Arabian, a Eurasian, a Polynesian, and a Chinese. Producers kept trying to type me as an exotic, slinky creature, the kind who are always leaning against pillars. That wasn't me. Of all the people I've known, I am probably the least mysterious. I have no trouble playing any role of any kind. My problems began when I tried to be myself. Starting with the casting of Lara, nearly every decision became a contest, but somehow it all worked. The head of the studio, Zanuck, openly disliked his producer, Otto Preminger. In turn, Preminger fired his director, Ruben Mamoulian, and took over the film himself. Nor was Otto satisfied with the portrait of me done by Ruben's wife, Azadia, then a popular Hollywood artist. It's one of the curious facts of movie making that paintings seldom transfer well to film. Otto felt that mine lacked the mystic quality he insisted on having. He sent me instead to pose for Frank Poloni, the studio photographer whose pictures of me as a starlet had appeared in so many magazines. Otto had one of these enlarged and lightly brushed with paint to create the effect he wanted. So the portrait of Laura was, in truth, a blow-up of a photograph. In a sense, even the song was a compromise. Preminger had wanted to use Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady as the theme music. David Raskin, the musical director, had another idea. He came up with a haunting melody that Johnny Mercer blessed with a lyric, and Laura became a classic. The song may have been the only part of the movie that did not have the Preminger touch. Otto had gotten his way with Zanuck in casting two of the major roles, Dana Andrews and Clifton Webb. Both were regarded as gambles. Andrews was unproven as a leading man. Webb had never made a movie, but had spent his career on Broadway and had an image that was, well, prissy. Prissy. Webb had just left Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit, in which he had appeared for almost a year, virtually quitting the show one night and arriving the next on the set of Laura. It was pleasant to observe at close range the professional respect between Clifton and Preminger. The role of the acid-tongue Waldo Lidecker was the most demanding of all, with long stretches of dialogue. There was a wonderfully brittle edge to Clifton, his manner, his speech, the way he moved— Part of what came across on the screen, the impression of a man very tightly strung, was true in person. After we finished filming, he suffered a nervous breakdown and checked himself into a sanitarium in New England. He came out of it rested and restored, but the main effect of his analysis was to encourage him to treat his mother rudely. As we prepared to leave his home one afternoon, his mother asked him to help her with her coat. Clifton drew himself up and sniffed, Fen for yourself. I scolded him instantly. Don't blame whatever's gone wrong on your mother, I said. It's too late for that. I never understood the theory, once popular among doctors, that blamed mental disorders on too little or too much mother love. My own mother was a darling. If we must build cases, certainly just as strong can be made for the unsettling effect of a father's love suddenly withdrawn or denied. Laura paid off for everyone connected with it. Clifton Webb's performance won him an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. The cameraman Otto chose, Joe Lachelle, who had never worked with a first unit before, won the Academy Award for Best Photography. Joe was determined to make a success of his big opportunity. He would take ages to light a scene. Every time I heard him say, no, no, it's not right, I could feel my teeth clench, and I knew there would be another hour or two of waiting for the lights to be reset. I was on the set before sun came up and tumbled home at 8 or 9 in the evening. Once Oleg, furious over the eternal delays, walked onto the set and took me by the arm. Come on, he roared. It's not worth it. Nothing is worth it. We're going home. And we did. Oleg knew better. The effort was worthwhile. Film Daily chose Laura as one of the year's 10 best motion pictures. What a tasty moment it was for Preminger, who drove himself and us so hard. He was simply tireless. When the rest of the cast seemed ready to drop from exhaustion, Otto would still muster as much vigor as when the day began. I never felt my own performance was much more than adequate. I am pleased that audiences still identify me with Laura, as opposed to not being identified at all. Their tributes, I believe, are for the character, the dreamlike Laura, rather than any gifts I brought to the role. I do not mean to sound modest. I doubt that any of us connected with the movie thought it had a chance of becoming a kind of mystery classic or enduring beyond its generation. It defied any of the usual Hollywood success formulas. The picture started out with a B, due in part to a feud between Zanuck and Preminger. We were a mixture of second choices, me, Clifton, Dana, the song, the portrait. If it worked, it was because the ingredients turned out to be right. Otto held us together, pushed and lifted what might have been a good movie into one that became something special. Preminger looked the part of a fencing instructor at a Prussian military academy. With his perfectly bald, egg-shaped dome and basset-hound eyes, he could charm and intimidate you at the same time. I should add that I was never around Otto when he was not a gentleman. Unlike certain other directors of that period, he had no insecurity and did not feel obligated to attempt the seduction of his leading ladies. I never understood the friction between Otto and Daryl Zanuck, although one can assume that such hefty egos out of different cultures could not coexist sweetly. Zanuck was, like most of the studio bosses of his day, tough, creative, charming when he had the time, a crude but polished man. He was always fair, often generous to me. In closing, I highly recommend that you track down a copy of Otto Preminger's autobiography, as well as Sitting Pretty, The Life and Times of Clifton Webb by David Smith. The book on Otto Preminger is, um, I think, pretty easy to find, and it's really good. It's, he's not at all what I thought he would be. And the book on Clifton Webb includes the six chapters that Clifton Webb wrote towards his memoirs, which were actually never completed, but they are gold. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Please join me next time for episode 47 when I talk about May Clark and James Whale's Waterloo Bridge from 1931. Thanks very much.